there's opposition to it, I understand that. But the reality is this, with the high quality coal that the U.S. has, if we export that coal, we will be displacing lower quality coal, and the net benefit is that there will be lower CO2 emissions. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about the future of fossil energy and how it could lead us to a net zero emission future. The United States gets about 80% of its energy from coal, oil, and natural gas. That includes transportation fuels as well as electricity. And yet, to hear many people tell it, fossil fuels are on their last leg. We're basically done with fossil fuels, right? A lot of experts would disagree. Even if the U.S. banned fossil fuels, the world is another story. And as you heard my guest in the cold open, it's in our interest to lead the way to ensure that the world uses them responsibly. But what, if any, is the role in the United States for coal? And even if we can affordably capture CO2, which my guest is focused on, what incentive is there without a punitive tax on CO2 emissions? My guest believes there's enough carrot out there to avoid the big stick of a CO2 tax. We also spent a big part of our interview discussing the future for hydrogen. Hydrogen is still so new as an energy option. Would it be developed as part of the fossil energy space or renewables? That may depend on how the H2 is produced. It's my firm belief that fossil energy sources will have an important role to play through our lifetimes, and it is critical to ensure that we can use them reliably, responsibly, and hopefully carbon-free. My guest today is Steve Winberg, Assistant Secretary for Fossil Energy at the Department of Energy. Steve's resume reads like what you expect this position to hold. He worked on coal plants, researched compressed natural gas vehicle programs, worked on coal to liquids and other alternative fuels, and holds patents on scrubber technologies. When I first started at the Clean Coal Foundation in Austin, Texas in 2007, the state was vying for a zero-emission coal plant called FutureGen. Steve was the board chair for that project, so he's been everywhere. Steve has occupied his role at DOE since 2017. Everyone I've spoken to since I got this interview say they love him, and I think you're going to agree. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Winberg. We're here with Steve Winberg, Assistant Secretary for Fossil Energy for the Department of Energy. And Steve, you got started as an engineer working in coal-fired boilers. So just plainly, what is the future for coal in this country? Yeah, great question. And you're right. I did start off early in my career being an engineer doing startups on coal-fired boilers and then did a lot of emerging technology work, in fact, for the majority of my career. The future for coal is probably not what people would think. As we know, the backbone of the coal fleet was built in the mid to late 70s, a little bit into the 80s. And so it's getting 40, 45 years old now. And we are seeing some retirements and some early retirements, especially during this COVID period, because power prices are low, natural gas prices are low, and some of those plants are having a difficult time competing on the grid. But what we envision here at the Department of Energy is a unique future for coal, and there are really three aspects to it. 
The number one is a program we call Coal First. First stands for flexible, innovative, resilient, small, transformative. And these will be 21st century power plants. They'll be small, flexible, very efficient, near zero, zero emissions, maybe even net negative emissions. Those small units can be used to back up intermittent renewables. But potentially an even bigger market is in developing countries around the world that have coal as a resource, and they will burn coal because it's low cost. The choice they have right now is utilizing technology that the U.S. developed in the 1970s. And it's been improved on a little bit, but primarily the Chinese are selling that technology around the world, but it is 1970s vintage technology. We envision a 21st century technology that will be flexible, as I mentioned, and will meet the needs of those developing countries around the world. A second area that we're very focused on is coal to products. Most people think of using coal when you burn it to produce steam, and then you use that to generate electricity. But coal has an enormous carbon value to it also. Rather than using the heating value of the coal, we're going to use the carbon value. Some people call it carbon ore. We can use this carbon to make a wide variety of products, carbon fiber, carbon nanotubes, graphene, building materials, a material for 3D printing or additive manufacturing. I'll give you an example. One of them is a substitute for ceramic roofing tile. Mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of that up in the northeast, but you see it in the south and southwest. We can produce a roofing tile that's lighter, less brittle, it won't crack as easily, it's more fire retardant, and has a longer life to it. We can also use coal to produce alternatives to lumber and wallboard and things like that. A lot of that R&D is going on. And then the final area that we envision for coal is hydrogen production. Yes. As countries around the world are looking to get to maybe a net zero CO2 emission, Europe, for example, net zero by 2050, some states here in the United States, New York being one net zero by 2050, they've got to address the transportation sector and not maybe the family automobile can be electric vehicles, but you're not going to use EVs on over-the-road long-haul trucks heavy equipment, trains, ships, planes. If we're going to move into a net zero CO2 economy, hydrogens can play a very important role. And the two cheapest forms of producing hydrogen are coal and natural gas. We can do that with coal and natural gas at a lot lower cost than what people refer to as green hydrogen, which is electrolysis. And I referenced earlier going to net negative emissions. Consider this. If we gasify coal with biomass, we can even gasify waste plastics. We add carbon capture utilization storage onto that, and we'll be net negative. Not near zero, not zero, but net negative CO2 emissions because of the biomass. And what'd you call it? Coal first. F-I-R-S-T, yeah. And so you're thinking that we may be building more coal plants, but they would be what you're describing almost sounds like a peaker role. Do I have that right? Peaker, or maybe I would call it more intermediate. Could also be base load. Certainly if we're exporting these technologies overseas, they probably would be more of a base load operation. But natural gas prices in the United States get up in that 6 or $7 range, then we might see coal come back, especially if it's zero emission coal fire generation that's flexible, and then it might take on more of a baseload operation. Should coal companies, the miners, the companies actually produce coal, should they start looking into more exports 
They are already. In fact, exports were up in 2018, down some in 2019. But yeah, they not only should, they are looking at exports. And one issue that we have in the United States is we don't have enough export capacity on the West Coast. There is some, but not a sufficient amount. The U.S. has some of the highest quality coal in the world. Some of that coal is out West, Wyoming and Montana, Utah. And if we had a West Coast terminal, we could be exporting coal into the Asian market that's very hungry for high-quality coal. Unfortunately, we don't have adequate export capacity on the West Coast. And there's opposition to it. I understand that. But the reality is this. With the high-quality coal that the U.S. has, if we export that coal, we will be displacing lower-quality coal sourced from other countries. And the net benefit is that there will be lower CO2 emissions because you get lower CO2 emissions with higher quality coal. Those people are going to burn coal anyway, so why not burn the highest quality coal they can get, reduce their CO2 emissions, and help our coal industry here in the U.S.? Yeah, I made that argument once about 10 years ago and got laughed at by some environmentalists. I was like, you need to think about this globally. <laughs> and I think that's certainly the point. You can always laugh in ignorance. <laughs> Steve, I noticed looking at your bio, there were so many things I wanted to ask you about. One of the things you also worked in was the coal to liquid space. Now, we haven't heard too much about that, of course, with natural gas and oil prices being so low and so steady. But do you think that has an application either here or abroad? More abroad than here, I would imagine. And China is moving pretty aggressively in the coal to liquid space. Of course, South Africa did during the apartheid days. But I think here in the U.S., with oil and gas prices being low, it's difficult to capitalize a coal to liquids facility. However, getting back to hydrogen, if you think about hydrogen replacing petroleum, electrolysis using renewables, it is about $250 a barrel equivalent of oil. Using coal or natural gas, we can be down in the $70 to $80 range. Certainly, we could see $67 oil here in the next several years. You're using a zero-emission fuel produced from coal with net negative emissions at about a third of the cost of what people refer to as green hydrogen. We talked before this, I served as executive director of a carbon capture and storage group in Texas. That's how I knew one of your predecessors, Chuck McConnell, who also had that role at DOE. What's the pathway for carbon capture and storage? Enhanced oil recovery, profit motive? What do you think is the fastest way to get us going with CCS? Great question, Jay. A couple of things going on within the CCUS space. First of all, when I got to this job, one of the first things that I asked us to get moving on was reducing the cost of carbon capture. If you look at the CCUS value chain from capture through to injection underground, about 75% of the cost is in capturing that CO2 molecule. I said, let's get ourselves on a path to reduce that down to about 50% lower than it is today. And we've been working on that. So ideally, our target goal is $30 a metric ton. 
That would be the capture cost. The second, then, is utilizing that CO2 for something. You mentioned <laughs> enhanced oil recovery. That has a potential revenue stream. Inject a ton of CO2 and get two barrels of additional oil out of an existing oil field, the economics start looking pretty good. Then layer on top of that 45Q, which was passed a couple years ago, and Treasury is now getting the rules out on that. I think the combination of reduced cost of CO2, enhanced oil recovery, even at a 40 or $50 a barrel oil price point and the 45Q tax credit, that starts to make economic sense. And what I have said since I got here and I continue to believe is that if we can make an economic case using a carrot like 45Q, industry will pick up CCUS, they'll run with it, and that's when the real learning begins. In addition to that, Jay, we are also evaluating ways to use that CO2 molecule. If we are going to go down a carbon neutral path, you can't get to the reduction levels without CCUS. We can utilize it as a feedstock for chemicals, fuels, a host of products, but breaking that CO2 molecule apart is a challenge. It's a pretty stable molecule. And then what we will have succeeded in doing is turning CO2 into a commodity. For so many years, carbon capture, utilization, and storage was really associated with coal. But something really opened my eyes when I interviewed Net Power. They're based here in North Carolina. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Should we be focusing more on natural gas carbon capture? Coal, like you said, still going to be there, but you know, natural gas is starting to play a bigger role. If we're really serious about CO2, that needs to be part of the discussion. Absolutely, and it is. If you look at our CCUS program, we're equally focused on natural gas. Now, it was over the last decade or so very coal-centric, no question about it. But again, when I got here, I started asking the question, where coal goes, natural gas will follow as it pertains to greenhouse gas reduction. So we started focusing on natural gas, also industrial sources, steel making, ethanol production, cement, and all of which are contributors to CO2 emissions. Our carbon capture program is focused on coal, natural gas, industrial sources. And then one other area we've expanded into is direct air capture. Are you familiar with that, Jay? I am, even more than capturing it from carbon sources. That's always been difficult to make financial sense, right? Well, sure. Concentrations matter. Sure. And you get high concentrations in coal and natural gas stack emissions, as well as industrial emissions. But you're dealing at 400 parts per million if you're going to pull CO2 out of ambient air. It is expensive, but the chemistry is very similar to what we're doing on coal, natural gas, and industry. We're going to put some of your taxpayer dollars into that uh, (laughs) to get the cost down, and I think we can, because one of the advantages of direct air capture or DAC is that we could put it wherever we need it. If you've got an oil field and we can get the cost of DAC down maybe in that $100 range, we can install those DAC facilities right on top of the oil field, and then we don't have to build pipelines, which are increasingly difficult to get permitted these days. You can locate the capture system where you need the CO2 commodity. Is it going to be a big piece of the carbon capture world? I don't know, but it might be a reasonably large piece of it in the future, so we're focused on it. Moving into oil, a steady oil price is nice to have, and I was involved with the early days of the 
fracking boom in the early part of the last decade. I think a lot of folks are confused. Why are we still facing these oil booms and busts in 2020? The situation on the ground is much different than it was in 1985. Shouldn't our newfound energy independence have changed that dynamic? It just doesn't feel like it has. With COVID, the demand destruction has been like nothing we've ever seen before, the degree of it. We've seen demand destruction before, of course. We saw that in 2008 when we started going into the Great Recession, but the speed and the amount of demand destruction that we've seen because of COVID is almost unprecedented. That really sent the market into a bit of disarray because we had all of this gasoline and jet fuel. Those were the two primary ones in the early days of COVID where the demand just fell right off. People weren't climbing on airplanes anymore and they're working from home. Distillate or diesel stayed reasonably flat for a while, but even that started to decline. The producing community couldn't wind down as quickly. And then of course you had OPEC with Russia and Saudi Arabia, and that took a few weeks to get squared away. And of course the president was intimately involved in that. As we work our way out of COVID, actually the oil markets have been very resilient given the demand destruction that we have seen. But to your broader question, why are we seeing volatility? I think we're seeing volatility in oil, mostly low prices, because there are a lot of producers out there. That is one of the beautiful things about the unconventional oil and gas plays, is you can get a rig and you can be producing oil or natural gas in six to nine months, potentially with multiple wells on the same pad. That created a lot of opportunities for the independent producers, small independent producers. I would suggest to you and to your listeners that those small independent producers created the situation that we're in now where the U.S. is energy dominant. We are exporting natural gas to Europe. We're exporting natural gas to Asia. We're exporting oil. That's what the shale, and you played in that business for a while, yep. that's what the shale gave to the United States. That's a little bit like the Wild West out there, but <laughs> as the business matures, and it will, businesses always do, I think you'll see a settling out of prices. But what won't change is the nimbleness of oil and gas production due to the shale plays. Back when I started in the oil and gas business, You'd be three to five years drilling a well offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, six to nine months. Yeah. Now, they don't produce at the same level, but you reach a price point for a relatively small amount of money a driller can get into the ground and drill. That has made us a lot more nimble than just about anywhere else in the world, even in the Middle East. We are more nimble than the Middle East. One of the things I originally approached y'all to talk about was the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and its role. It seems like we don't hear about it until something happens with oil, then that's all you hear about. And this may be a little bit more political in nature, but what's the SPR's position as a relief valve on high or low oil prices? I think the president signed an exhorter to start taking on oil maybe boost up the oil price. The exact opposite seemed to be happening in the 2000s when they were talking about halting deposits to the SPR to help with high prices. So what's that whole facility's role with prices of oil? That's a great question. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we call it the SPRO, was built now about 43 years ago because of the Arab oil embargo. We built two facilities in Louisiana, two facilities in Texas. Congress authorized us at one point to store up to a billion barrels. I think the most we got up to was just under maybe 750, somewhere in that neighborhood. Mm. 
But the purpose was to be able to get oil into the market if there was a limitation on crude, maybe uh, import limitations, or we've found the last decade or so that hurricanes stop production in the Gulf of Mexico, and before that production can get going, refineries need the oil, so we've released oil from the SPRO to provide crude for those refineries. And that's been its mission since the beginning. Congress was mandating that we sell oil from about 750 million barrels down to 400 over the next several years, but still having that 750 million barrel capacity. And then COVID hit. <laughs> Prices dropped, demand dropped, the producing community couldn't back off production as quickly as demand was dropping. And so a new mission emerged for the SPRO. We had asked Congress for $3 billion so that we could buy crude oil from small and mid-sized producers. And our belief was, and it still continues to be my belief, that had Congress appropriated that money, we would have been able to supply much needed liquidity to these small and mid-sized producers. We would have bought oil at rock bottom prices, stored it in the SPRO, and then in two or three years from now, Congress could have ordered us to sell that oil. And I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that we could have gotten a 100% return on investment to the taxpayer. And I don't think there's much else that the U.S. government does that will give a return to the taxpayers like that. Yeah, you don't hear about the government making money too much, do you? <laughs> No, you don't. And in the process, helping small producers out that are in dire need of liquidity. But at any rate, Congress chose not to do that. And so we opened the SPRO up to store producers' oil, and we are doing just that. When those producers want that oil back, we will discharge it, and they will leave a little bit behind, and that'll be the rent payment or the lease payment on the storage. And then Congress can tell us to sell that oil. So I think moving forward, we're evaluating this potential new mission for SPRO. Might not be because of another pandemic. There could be other reasons for severe demand destruction, but it's, I think, a potential new mission for SPRO. Taking this back to the beginning, we were talking about coal and you mentioned hydrogen. You sound like someone who's pretty bullish on hydrogen. I am too. Do you think that there would be any need in the future for, I guess, a strategic reserve for hydrogen? <laughs> Oh, I think it's possible. Yeah. Sure. Hydrogen can be stored underground. It's entirely possible. One thing that, and, and I'm speculating here, we're pretty early in the hydrogen story, but if we're producing hydrogen from coal, from natural gas, from electrolysis, one might imagine that that might be fairly distributed around the United States, the hydrogen production facilities, which would, of course, mean that we wouldn't need 48-inch long-haul pipes moving hydrogen. So the transportation infrastructure for hydrogen might not be as great as what we have for oil or natural gas. And given that, if you've got more distributed production, maybe you wouldn't need a strategic hydrogen reserve. But I could also see where it might make some sense to do that. Maybe it would be more distributed. It wouldn't be just two facilities in Louisiana and two in Texas. It's hard to tell, but that's what DOE gets paid to do is try and look out over the horizon and figure out what makes sense and move forward accordingly. Not just look administration to administration, right? <laughs> Steve, one of the other things it said in your bio is that you worked on alternative fuel vehicles. So hydrogen's also one. What alternative fuels do you like? 
Well, back in the day, I was looking at working on natural gas vehicles, also known as compressed natural gas CNG vehicles. I worked for an integrated natural gas company. We were trying to develop that market for NGVs. And, of course, it was the proverbial chicken and egg situation where, at the time, Detroit auto industry would say to us, well, you build out a fueling infrastructure, and then we'll build the NGVs. And we couldn't build the fueling infrastructure without a market. So we had some success on things like city buses and taxi cabs and UPS, that sort of thing, where they would go back to a central refueling area. But it was a real market pull, and it was challenging and continues to be challenging. With hydrogen, if the driver is significant CO2 emission reductions, then I could see hydrogen moving forward, maybe with a little bit easier path than NGVs or even electric vehicles for that matter. Right now, in the United States, the transportation sector is the largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions, more so than electricity. By only a couple percentage points, but it will continue to grow and electricity production's emissions will continue to decline. I come back to what you and I talked about earlier. What do you do with the over-the-road trucks, heavy equipment, trains, ships, and ultimately maybe even airplanes? If we're going to have significant CO2 reductions from those forms of transportation. I just don't see any other viable alternative other than hydrogen. It might be a market push rather than a market pull. <laughs> Good point. All right, Steve, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Natural gas is going to continue to grow and right now is probably the fuel of choice for hydrogen. Crude oil. Crude oil is not going anywhere for decades and decades to come. It will be used all over the world, and the U.S. is the largest producer of crude oil, and that gives us a lot of opportunities and strengthens our geopolitical opportunities. Nuclear. Small modular reactors could be in the U.S. future. For sure. Permitting any kind of nuclear reactor is a challenge and will continue to be so. Like those SMRs. Coal. Watch out. There's going to be 21st century coal, and it won't be what people normally think about when they think about coal. It'll be coal products and hydrogen. Wind. Wind is going to continue to grow, but it's going to continue to be intermittent. So without backup, whether it's battery or coal or natural gas, wind is challenged. Solar. Solar is equally challenged for the same reason. Not only that, but some of the power quality issues that we face here in the United States are particularly challenged if we rely solely on wind and solar. Biofuels. I think there's great opportunities for biofuels along with coal because that gets us to net negative CO2 emissions. Hydroelectric. Hydroelectric is limited because building dams these days is not in the cards, but there may be some opportunities to upgrade our existing hydro facilities and squeak a few more megawatts of power out of them. Geothermal. Geothermal is the big promise. We'll see if it delivers. Energy storage. We have a long, long, long way to go in energy storage. People mostly think about batteries, but there are a number of other ways to store energy. So even from base-loaded coal or natural gas units, we can store energy and then utilize it when demand is higher. Electric vehicles. I think electric vehicles will continue to capture a small percentage of the passenger vehicle market. Maybe some small vans, transportation, you know, the Amazon trucks and that sort of thing, but its role is limited in the transportation sector. Energy efficiency, megawatts. There's a lot of hope placed on improving efficiency and thus 
making significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, but I think those energy efficiency goals are very, very optimistic, not only here in the U.S., but globally. And then finally, fusion power. The holy grail. (laughs) All right. Steve Winberg, Department of Energy, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Jay. You have yourself a great day. That was Steve Winberg, Assistant Secretary for Fossil Energy at the Department of Energy. Now, you may have heard me reference Chuck McConnell, who also held the same position at DOE before Steve. Chuck was president of the Clean Coal Foundation when I joined back in Austin in 2007. A few years ago, I was at a conference where I ran into some guys who worked with Chuck at the same time he was being screened for the role at DOE. As is customary, high-level government appointees are investigated by the FBI or Secret Service. This co-worker knew he'd been approached as a character witness for Chuck and was locked and loaded when the G-men came to visit. Now, before the FBI or Secret Service got to the first question, this co-worker who I met said that he had already launched into his spiel that you'll never find a more red-blooded American than Chuck and he loves this country more than life itself. The agent then politely stopped him and said, look, I just need to know two things. Has he gambled? Has he ever been unfaithful? (laughs) I want to thank Steve for his time as well as Mark Willis at the Department of Energy for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. Now that wraps up episode 90. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how new technologies are making intermittent solar power more reliable. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.